Well, good morning and uh, excited to have my wife up here with me today. I don't usually have her here, but she was concerned about a couple of things I might say today. Thought she'd come up and keep me in, you know, saying the right thing. That's what a good wife is for. So, my name. Oh, and my her name is Karen. Yes, for those of you that have not met why my, my wife, Karen, of 26 years. Good to have you here. We, uh, you know, this uh, Memorial Weekend, as I said earlier, a good opportunity for us to stop and to remember and to appreciate it. It raises a sense of patriotism in us, doesn't it? It helps us maybe love our nation a little bit more. You know, when you open the Bible, you, you see in here, obviously, there's a tremendous story of God's love for the individual. I mean, there, there's, you see God working, moving to reach you, your heart, your mind, you as a, a single person. But yet also in this story, you see God's love for the nations. Uh, all parts of the Bible refer to God's concern, his love for the nations. And so it's very appropriate to be patriotic, to love your country. Uh, and I think there's some great ways that we show that love. Obviously, one we've acknowledged today, uh, those soldiers who've paid the ultimate price for our securities, our freedoms. I think the scripture would say another way we greatly love our country is when we carry the gospel to our fellow countrymen. Do you think about people around you that way? Carrying the gospel to my fellow countrymen. But uh, I think the scripture would say it's appropriate to, to love our nation. You know, beyond that, we might wonder, well, are we to love other nations? Are we to, to, to care about other nations? I think a lot of us in here, having traveled on mission trips, we, we fall in love with that country, don't we? A lot of us have fallen in love with places like Nicaragua and Ukraine where we've gone over and over. Sometimes you just go on a mission trip somewhere one time and, and now you've got some of their stuff hanging on your walls or maybe a flag or something like that. But you begin to love that nation because of, of the gospel. One nation I think a lot of believers wonder about, of, of course, is the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, as we just came through our You Asked For It series, you know, we got lots of questions from that. D- didn't even hardly deal with a fraction of them in the series. But uh, one, one question or a group of questions had to do with our relationship with Israel. You know, is the Israel of today the Israel of the Bible? What is to be the believer's relationship or, or responsibility to, to Israel? How would we answer that? And like I answered a lot of those questions in the series, you know, I just get right on the center of the fence and say yes and no. Uh, let, me, let me take the no. And, and of course, it's a very light no when I say, is the Israel today the Israel of the Bible? Or is that true Israel? You know, I would refer to one verse, Romans 9, 6. That says not everyone descended from Israel is Israel. In other words, the statement God is making there is the focus isn't just on what are the geographical borders that you're born in or or what is your heritage. Jesus is the Messiah. And it is Jesus that makes true Israel Israel. In in other words, we might think of like a Messianic Jew, a Jewish person that does believe uh, Jesus is the Messiah, has received them as their Savior and Lord... That would be true Israel. True Israel is about a relationship with the Messiah more than a a flag or a border or uh, an army. The the current Israel, of course, is a Messiah-rejecting nation. They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Karen and I had several opportunities to talk to individuals, to talk about the gospel. And boy, they say very clearly, we do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, that, that, that is their belief right now. 
Um, and so in that sense, that, that is, that's not what makes true Israel true Israel. So that's, that's the no. But now let me flip over to the yes. Because I think we do well to remember Jesus loves the Jewish people. Those are his called, those are his chosen people. The scripture actually talks about him actually loving that land of Israel. A lot of us study, like, get intrigued by books like Revelation. Well, you know, folks, one of the biggest things happening in Revelation is the tribulation, the great tribulation that is going to come on this earth. You know, one of the two things that the tribulation is all about is the discipline of that Messiah-rejecting nation of Israel, but also their salvation in that discipline. So God has still very much included them uh, in the story. This is, a, this is a story of God's love for those people. Let me, let me just read some of the, the passages, uh, and, and there's lots that, that kind of point this out. Psalm 87, beginning in verse 1, it says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. You know, it doesn't say that about another city on the planet. There, there is a city he founded, and that's Jerusalem. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken. O city of God. There's one city on the planet that is referred to as the, the city of God, and that's Jerusalem. Another passage, uh, I think some of us have probably heard or somewhat familiar with. It's Psalm 122, verse 6. It's a command. We might ask ourselves, who's obeying this command? We won't do a show of hands. There's a command in your life and my life. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. When's the last time you prayed for the peace of Jerusalem? A spiritual peace, a physical peace. Pray for the, the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. May there be a security, a blessing, a prosperity in the lives of those that love Jerusalem. Another passage that's really kind of interesting uh, is Ezekiel 16. The reason I think this passage is interesting is I just made the point a moment ago that the current Israel, of course, is a Messiah rejecting Israel. They do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. That, that puts them in rejection, in rebellion. And we might wonder, well, now, now that they've done that, where does that put them with God now? I mean, surely he's bothered by that, right? Well, of course God's bothered by that. And in Ezekiel 16, we see God interacting with Israel that is rebelling, that is rejecting, uh, that is in disobedience. As a matter of fact, it's a little bit of a, a, a difficult passage, a harsh passage, because as God is dealing with this and, and what Israel's doing, he refers to them over and over and over as an adulterous whore. Kind of rough language, isn't it? He's saying, hey, this is how you make me feel. This is what you're doing to the love relationship that, that I've created for you. And so in this passage, we know, okay, what's the context? God's dealing with a, a, a nation that is rebellious, a nation that is rejecting. And yet right in the middle of all that, here's how he concludes this chapter. It's a long chapter, 63 verses, 58 of the 63 verses. He's talking about them being an adulterous whore. And, and then this is how he ends in verse 60. Yet I will remember my covenant marriage language, the, the language of love. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish for you an everlasting 
And when they're in the heart of their rebellion and their rejection, God is talking about his everlasting. Everlasting, even though this passage is thousands of years old, 2014 still included in everlasting, right? Everlasting means it goes on and on and on forever and ever. God still has a plan. God still has a relationship with this great land. And then just kind of summing up where the whole story is going. Uh, with, with the whole of humanity. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. What's the dwelling place of God? That new Jerusalem. And that's where you and I get to live forever and ever with the Lord God. Oh, folks, it's a tremendous story. It's a story that begins in the land of Israel. It's a story that that culminates in the land of Israel. Obviously, we have here a book that reveals spiritual truths about a spiritual world. But it's delivered in a very physical world. And I'll tell you, it's pretty awesome to stand in the midst of... Of that physical world that God delivered these truths. And I believe it is very appropriate. Very appropriate for the follower of Christ. To love the Jewish people. To have an affinity for those people for that land. That is still today, if you stop and think about it. The center of the world. Karen, why don't you uh, share a little bit about our, our trip. It was back at the end of March, 1st of April. What was some of your overall impressions about, about going there and being there? Well, um, it was remarkable to, after teaching um, Sunday School or Life Group for over 20 years, to um, take all the stories that I've learned. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Just God's truths are amazing. To to actually go and see the physical, tangible part of those stories, to see where David defeated Goliath, to see where Saul and Jonathan were defeated on a mountain, to see where Moses, the mountain that he looked into Jericho, to see where Jericho, to go to Jericho where the walls came tumbling down, to see where Moses died, and, but before he died got to see you know, mm-hmm. the promised land and beyond Jericho. But to, to go and see um, Nazareth, and then from Nazareth, um, when Randy and I were there, we got to travel from Nazareth into Jerusalem, and as, we were on a bus. Not, we didn't walk it. Like <laughs> they did. But while we were traveling from Nazareth, Jerusalem was a beautiful city on a hill, and you could see it. And, and it made me think of the Psalms, Psalms 120 to 134 are songs of ascent. And these are the very songs that the people sang as they walked up to Jerusalem. And, you know, I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. And, and, and just to see all of that, to go to the Sea of Galilee and um, there's a, to actually go on a boat upon the Sea of Galilee. Where Jesus stood and he calmed the storm. And then he looked at to the disciples and said, why are you afraid? I mean, to just be where Jesus was. It made the story so tangible, so real. The, the greatest story of all the earth. It, it'd be like, 
you know, you love the story of Cinderella, and then you get to go to Disney World, and you see her castle, and you're like, oh. You know, it makes a, or if you Just like. Just like Cinderella's castle. Yeah. <laughs> or if you, if, you like, if you had read the books Harry Potter and went to Harry Potter land, it's like you, there's something about us that just wants something that you love so very much to be real and to, to be, you know, the physical part and be in it and part of it. It's, you know, this is real. This is God's word. And to go there and see all the stories that we've loved for so many years, and it was real. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and then another thing, Randy, was when Randy and I took this trip, we were very cognizant the whole time, everywhere we went, of your love for us, our church love. This trip was a gift from you. It's not anything we could have done. It was pretty expensive to go. And um, so we just felt your presence and your love with us as we did this trip. We felt very encouraged and loved by our church family. We told our bus of about 40 people, you know, this was a gift from our church. And they were like, wow, they must really love you. And and it, it, it was like encouraging. Every place we went, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here. And thank you for a church that loves us and sent us here. And the third thing... Um, was this was our first trip together since our honeymoon. That sounds terrible, but it's the truth. <laughs> Except for a day trip here and there. Randy and I get to... Well, we have trips are just filled up with kids. Filled with kids. <laughs> or you know, mission trips. Yeah. We go on mission trips, and we sleep in bunk beds, and we work all day and build stuff. And so, but we've never really gone together anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I, I realized I still like you. Yeah, that's... <laughs> A very cool part of going to Israel. <laughs> but I, I enjoy, I remember, you know, when you go out on the date or something, you're like, oh, I just love, I love you, and I love being with you, and I still enjoy your company, and it was just wonderful, and I, I kept thinking, I want to do this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, moving on to the next slide. <laughs> uh, Karen, this was a, a, a picture you took, a place that was meaningful to you. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, we got to visit all the sites, and then... Um, the, we, this is uh, Caiaphas's palace, or where it was located. And you can see the rooster on top of the little column there. But this is the courtyard where um, Jesus, or where Peter denied Jesus. Um, how many times? Three times. He, he denied him three times. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking about how Jesus was here. And, and John and Peter were able to get into this courtyard, because John must have known Caiaphas. And they're in there. And a, a servant girl asked Peter, you know, you must be one of his disciples. And he said no and said it three times. And then he looked at Jesus and he wept bitterly. And it was such a place. I was sitting there thinking this is where um, Peter failed Jesus so much. Yet I was thinking in John 1, Jesus had already named Simon Peter. He named him. He gave him his name, Peter the Rock. And then right here at the end of John, Peter was far from being a rock. He, he failed him. And um, yet Jesus, when we're saved, he looks at us as how we're going to be, conformed to the image of his son. And then when we fail him, I wonder if Jesus, when he was looking at Peter, saying, you're still the rock. You're still the rock. You're going to be a rock. And Peter did end up being a rock. And I thought of God's love and mercy through all that time, being where Peter failed and wept bitterly about his failure, I thought, you know, Lord, I've I've made so many mistakes, but you look at me past my problems, past my fear, past my, uh, my problems with unforgiveness. You look at me 
and you see me in the image of your son. And so I was just, I was overwhelmed by that story. You, and that's how it is. When you go to Israel, you go to different places, and you, the Lord helps you think through those stories. Mm-hmm. He teaches your spirit. Yeah. There was, um, that was good, by the way. Uh, there was two places that, uh, just, just being there, not, not this specific spot or the specific story, but just a, a variety of things. And I want to hop up for this one. This is, uh, Karen showed you a moment ago a, a picture of the Sea of Galilee up from the Golan Heights. Uh, this picture, uh, of course, we're actually on the, the Sea of Galilee. And, and, of course, when you think about the Bible, you think a lot about Jerusalem, right? But when you're not in Jerusalem, when the story's not in Jerusalem, Old and New Testament, a whole lot of the stories tend to take more toward the northern end of Israel than the, the southern end where, where Jerusalem is. It's more the northern end up by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, yeah, like when you're right here, I mean, you're 30 minutes from, from just not everything, but so many things that happen in Scripture. From right here, you're, you're 30 minutes away. You're in, you're in where the Battle of Armageddon will be. You're 30 minutes. You're well, very few minutes. You're at the Sermon on the Mount. And in very few minutes, you're where Gideon uh, had his army of 10,000 and God whittled it down to 300 so that he would get the glory. You're, you're right here is where Mount Carmel is. And remember Elijah up there and he called fire down from heaven on the false prophets of of Baal. And so you've got all these things that happen uh, just right here. And just kind of, this is not a very spiritual statement. It won't help you live this week at all. But just putting all the spatial element. Okay, you're standing here and, and just kind of putting it together. Right on the other side of this mountain is Nazareth. And right over here is Cana. And, and of course, a big place right here. This is Capernaum. Now, when you're talking about Capernaum, that's Jesus' base of operations. Uh, when you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 75% of what's happening is happening in and around from Capernaum. They're leaving Capernaum. They're going back to Capernaum. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, but his three years of ministry were spent mostly in Capernaum, except when they went down uh, to Jerusalem. And, of course, as Karen just said, you never actually say going down to Jerusalem. We think of north and south, and that's going down. But when you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up the hill. So in the Bible, they always talk about going up to Jerusalem, wherever they're coming from. But uh, here in Capernaum, this is where Peter and Andrew grew up. This is where James and John grew up. This is where Matthew was collecting taxes. All of these men that would become disciples of the Lord. You know, when you're reading the Gospels, it says, and they got in the boat and went to the other side. More than likely, they're leaving from right here. And so when you read that, you know, now all of a sudden, hey, you can see. I know they went from over there to over there. There's that place where Jesus cast the demons out of that guy. Remember, they go into the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff. That cliff's right over here. You see it. It's not in the picture. But, but all of a sudden, you see all these places uh, where it's going and spatially putting it together. It's just very meaningful. Probably the other place. Uh, oh, this is where he walked on water. I think Karen said that. This is where he calmed the storm. Uh, after Jesus was resurrected, he said, I'll meet you at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and he went there and they hadn't caught fish all day long. And Jesus said, put the net on the other side. And they caught 153. Uh, so, you know, miracles done there. Karen referring to Peter's failure. It would have been along this shore somewhere where Jesus met alone with Peter. And they got that fixed. And they got that right, and, and he restored them to being that rock. But uh, another place that uh, was, was a favorite of mine, just being there, was uh, 
Mount of Olives. And this is right outside of Jerusalem, right outside the city walls. And uh, the Mount of Olives, the scriptures refer to a lot of times whenever Jesus and the disciples went to the Mount of Olives or went to Jerusalem. When they were done in Jerusalem, they'd hang out at the Mount of Olives. That might be where they would go and spend the night, camp out and sleep. Uh, they'd go and, and get alone and, and be away. And uh, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. That's what that, that picture is right there. That's in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, that's, of course, where he was arrested and, and his trials and crucifixion began. But, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to go to a place that Jesus thought it was cool to go and hang out. That, that's where he wanted to go and, and, and be alone, go and, and, and be with friends. And, and just to think about what, why that spot was meaningful to him, what he enjoyed there. And it's a beautiful mount. It's not hard to imagine why anybody would enjoy uh, being there. When I say mount, you know, I don't know about y'all, uh, having spent a lot of my life in Colorado, when I think of mountain, I think of really big mountains. A lot of these places called mounts are, are really like large hills. Like from the top of the Mount of Olives, you could walk to the bottom in, in 10 or 15 minutes. It's a, a, a short walk and you've done the whole thing. But uh, when, when you're sitting on the Mount of Olives, if Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives, there is one dominant thing that he'd be looking at. Anytime he went there, day or night, any time of year, when he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, he's looking at that. He's looking at the eastern gate in the wall of Jerusalem. Now, there are three gates per wall, 12 total gates. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem is going to have the same 12 gates. They're really going to be decked out nice, according to Revelation. Uh, But you have these 12 gates, and that's how people move in and out of uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, And the, the gates are all open except one, and that's the eastern gate. It's sealed up. Uh, It's real interesting. If you go to Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 44, uh, Zechariah 14, uh, those are some chapters that talk a lot about the eastern gate. And and they refer to, of course, uh, the coming of the Messiah, the great day of the Lord. We refer to that as the second coming. And it says that when Jesus comes back, he'll, he'll come down on the Mount of Olives. Uh, which is where he ascended, that, that mount where you're on. And that's kind of cool just to look up in the sky and think, now, you know, you can look at any sky and say that's where Jesus ascended. But to be standing on the sky that he was looking at is, is kind of cool to think, you know, he ascended. But it's that same place that he's going to come back down. And, and those passages say that when his foot touches the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is going to split open. That the mount is literally going to divide in two. And then the glory of God in Jesus is going to enter through that gate. Oddly enough, in those same passages, there is a prophecy that that gate will be sealed up. And as you can see right now, it's sealed up. All the other gates are open. All the other gates have traffic, uh, people moving in and out of them. This one is sealed up. It was actually prophesied that it would be sealed up. And you might wonder, you know, sometimes, you know, the prophecies are fulfilled. You wonder, hey, did we do that on purpose to make it look like the prophecy came true? You know, did, did Christians manipulate that or, or Jews manipulate that? Actually, it was an enemy of Christians and Jews that sealed the gate. It was uh, an Islamic leader by the name of Solomon. And uh, he was a leader in 1517. And he had learned about these prophecies. He'd learned about the, the Jewish Messiah and that the Jewish Messiah would return through the eastern gate. And so upon learning that, he said, well, we're going to close the gate up so he can't get in. 
And so he sealed the gate in 1517. And then just to make sure that the Messiah wouldn't come back through there, the Messiah being a priest-like figure, a priest is not going to go across uh, dead people because that would make them unclean. And so after he sealed up the gate, you can't really tell, but all those white things in front of it, those are tombs, he put an Islamic cemetery uh, there in front of the gate, making sure that when the Messiah came back, he couldn't get in. Now, I don't know about y'all. I don't think it's going to be much of an issue for Jesus. I think he's going to be able to handle that gate being sealed up. But isn't it interesting that, that that gate being sealed actually fulfilled prophecy? But the, the thing I thought was interesting as I sat there, knowing Jesus would have been sitting somewhere, standing somewhere on that mount, looking at that gate. You know, we just talked a couple of weeks ago about about a world in which we deal with suffering and evil, right? And, and one of the things, you know, the scripture on one hand, it tells us why. And some of those things help us. Some of those things maybe we don't find so satisfying as to why there's suffering and evil in the world. But another big thing the scripture does is it tells us how. How to get through it. How to, how to endure. And, and a lot of the hope that the scripture gives us, folks, is heaven. How do you get through today? Put your heart, put your mind, put your focus on heaven. That's what you're a citizen of. That's where you're going. Romans 8.18, as you're dealing with suffering and evil, Romans 8.18 promises us that the glory we're going to experience in heaven so far outweighs. It can't even be compared to any kind of suffering or evil that we might go through now. So we know the scripture in dealing with hard times, bad times, puts the hope out there in front of us. Well, as I was thinking that, I couldn't help but think, as Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, in his humanity, and he's, what he's got in front of him is rejection and, and humiliation and ultimately the crucifixion. Did he sit there on that mount and look at that gate and say, but that crucifixion's not the end of the story? In his humanity, did he have to take that, that biblical injunction, set your hope on things to come? Did he like going? Because there's mounts all around Jerusalem. There's all kinds of places you can go and sit and look at Jerusalem. But he constantly picked that place where one day, in all of his glory, he would walk through that gate, being recognized by every nation of this world to be the king of all kings. Did he draw hope? Did he, I, scripture doesn't tell me that. I just wondered, did he think about that? Did he focus on that as he sat on the Mount of Olives with that one thing he would be looking at, the Eastern Gate? So, Karen, how about you? Another, another place that was important. Well, and then also, I wonder if when he was saying the words, not my will, but thy will be done, if he was looking at that gate too. Yeah, yeah, the Garden of Gethsemane, you'd be looking at that gate when he was praying that. Um, this is the Wailing Wall, and... Um, the world comes here. It's very crowded all the time. People come to this wall. And the reason being is, and Randy talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when you go up to Jerusalem and, you, you know, you can see the ruins of the temple. But imagine, you know, back in Jesus' day, the temple was the center of the city. It was what the whole city was focused on. It was huge. It was elevated, and it was huge. It was about 40 acres. 40, the, the entire temple complex was 40 acres. To put that in perspective, folks, our entire property, which you don't see all of it. We have property that goes into the trees, and the trees back there, it goes all the way to the, rail, uh, the railroad. Uh, our entire property is 38 acres. So the temple complex was 
Two acres larger than that. That's not including parking for 10,000 camels that was over on the side. Uh, no, that's the entire temple complex was, was 40 acres. Y- y'all are the first service that liked my camel parking joke. I appreciate that. Thank you. That means that gets me right here. Go ahead, but, Karen. But the people are they're coming to the city to be near to God because God is dwelling in the temple in the Holy of Holies. But, um, you know, so today this wall right here was declared the closest wall to the Holy of Holies. So people today come from all around the world because they want to be near the temple of God. They want to be where God's presence is. They're coming and they're crying and they're putting prayers within the wall. They put all their prayers and they're just beseeching and seeking God. And so we went there and Randy went up to the wall and he prayed for the, the world, represent the world is there. I mean, people from all around the world go. And he was praying for them, but... Yeah, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go up to the wall. I mean, when I was in college, I grabbed hold of the very important fact that the Bible is the Word of God. It's inerrant, it's literal Word of God. And I know that in Corinthians, Paul says, it, it likes he pleads with us to realize this very important truth. In 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, do you not know you're the temple of God? You are the temple of God. And he keeps talking about us being the temple of God. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, as you do, you think about spiritual truths when you're in in Israel. And I'm thinking, Lord, you reside in me. Emmanuel, God is with us. He is in us. We are the temple of God. We are like this temple with feet. And we can go to this lost and dying world and we can be Jesus, we can glorify him to seek and save the lost by being holy and merciful and gracious and forgiving. And God so desires to draw near to the world, and he uses us. What a holy and awesome privilege to be called the temple of God, and that God dwells in us, and that we can share um, his presence through the gospel with the lost and dying world. And I'm sitting there saying, Lord, I'm temple. I was just overwhelmed with that privilege and that I needed to be more faithful to share his presence, to make sure I'm walking in the spirit of God and and make sure I'm witnessing the the good news that they may also be the temple of God. So um, that's what I felt when I saw that. Then there's, I want to show three pictures together real quickly and I'll go back and forth over them. And, And Karen wants to share a little bit about this. Along the, the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, the, the path Jesus took to the, to the cross, um, there, there's a church here. Uh, it's a Catholic church, and they, they believe this is the site where Jesus was crucified. I, I personally do not think that the history and the research supports that. Um, it was actually Constantine, if y'all remember world history, Constantine's mother-in-law declared this the spot and uh, normally it is a good idea to listen, by the way, to your mother-in-law, uh, but, but she's the one that declared the spot. So they, they built this church, and the church actually encapsulates the, the cross where Mary would have held Jesus when he was taken off the cross, and then the, the resurrection. And it, that, what these three pictures I just showed you are in a room smaller than this. So it'd be like saying the crucifixion was right there, Jesus or Mary held Jesus right there, and the, and the resurrection was right there, which is... Again, somewhat Im- improbable, but that's what these—that's what these three pictures uh, uh, represent. And so, Karen, go ahead and share a little bit about that. Well, you know, when you go to these places, I mean, I, I was thinking about 
when I was um, younger, and I was in a religion where, you know, I knew that Jesus was God and came to earth and died on the cross, but I never trusted in the cross alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I never looked upon the cross for the, the, um, for the forgiveness of my sins. And, um, but then when I did, I was so glad to get rid of the works that I, I, I was so glad to move away from the works part. But when you go here, you see the people wanting to know 100% that they might, you know, know God. And I, I feel like I know that. I have a peace and assurance of being holy, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did. I know 100% when I die, I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything I've done, but only because of Christ. And I, I didn't feel I needed to do this. I needed to touch this. I needed a relic. You used to always have relics of people's cloths and, or of saints or maybe a saint, possibly. And I didn't have to fear. that it, I had such a peace that can only come from having the assurance of placing your full um, faith and trust in the cross. And um, I just, I looked at that and I was sad. And I remembered that that's where the Lord brought me from. But I was, and I was also just joyful that I, I know the peace of God inside. It really is uh, uh, kind of overwhelming. And this is, uh, negative's not the right word, but, but a little bit of the negative feel. I mean, in, when you're in Jerusalem, you're in the, the capital of, religious, of the religious world. I mean, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, all kind of claim this as a, as a capital. And you see all this stuff going on, and it's, especially in this church. You walk in, and you've, you just felt like Jesus would walk in and say, you know, I died so you wouldn't have to do all this. Yeah. I died so you wouldn't have to have all this fear and guilt and, oh, oh maybe I can just, and it's just, it's a little bit heartbreaking. Yeah, and I, and I just felt I'm free from that. I'm free yeah. from all of that work stuff. Yeah, so uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah, this is, you know, folks, we'll try to wrap up now. Um, yeah, you know, we were there 10 days. Karen and I have literally hundreds of pictures. And I don't know about y'all when y'all go on vacation. I've already reached that place when I go back and look at my pictures now. About a third of them, I can't remember what I was taking a picture of. Y'all ever do that? I'm like, I, don't, I don't know what, the, I got a lot of picture of rocks. I don't know what they mean now anymore. Uh, you know, so we got lots of pictures, but you know, we could share stories with you on through till time to barbecue tomorrow afternoon, uh, you know, of different places and, and, and what you take in. Again, this is a, a site that's just north of the Sea of Galilee, and, and you measure kind of, okay, you're reading the scripture, you know where they were going, uh, you know where they stopped, and you can kind of pinpoint some of these places. This particular place, it, it, you see kind of that glare in the bottom, that's a, a, a river, and, uh, or, or a body of water. And you can kind of just imagine the disciples there kind of camping out, maybe getting ready to go to sleep, kind of a few of them talking. And, and maybe just as they're about to doze off, you know, Jesus walks along and he, he taps Peter and, and then James and John says, you three come, come with me. And they, and they make their way up to the top there. And uh, that's the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus showed those three guys, hey, here's me, not in my humanity, Here's me in all my glory, what, what I look like in heaven. And just, you know, to stand there and just kind of absorb where something like that, you know, that, something like that happened uh, right there. You know, another thought that another place that was just incredible. I will never read the word wilderness in the Bible the same again. Uh, you read the, the gospel accounts. Jesus goes out of Bethany 
and goes toward the River Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. And if you, you know, if you look in the back of your Bible and the maps, I, I never used to look there, I'll be honest with you. I rarely went to the maps. But there is some interesting information in those things. And you see Jerusalem and right above, a little bit to the right of Jerusalem, you see Bethany. And so you kind of imagine Jesus going out of Bethany toward the River Jordan. You'll see that in your map. And, you know, well, you know, I don't know the exact line he took to the River Jordan, but I can probably guess within a mile uh, there on the river, somewhere along here, he would have been baptized. And then what comes out of there into the land? Because in Mark, it says that then after he was baptized, that immediately the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was uh, tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. This is at the, the beginning of his ministry. He's preparing what he's going to do for you and me. And, and when you leave the River Jordan, there around Bethany, there around Jerusalem, and you go out into the wilderness, that's what you go to. And, and, and folks, when you're in an air-conditioned bus in the wilderness, you don't want to get off without a bottled water in your hand. I mean, it is just like barren dirt, you know, for hundreds of miles as far as you can see. And, and so, you know, when you're there and you think, okay, now this is where he was. 40 days and 40 nights without anything to eat or drink. Praying, fasting, of, of course, Satan attacking him, preparing uh, for his three-year ministry and what he was going to do for you and me. And so, you know, it's just over and over you, you, you go to these kinds of sites and uh, you realize, man, God has told an incredible story. And, and God's story has started in the land of Israel. We know from Revelation 21 that, that God's story is going to culminate in the land of Israel. But folks, God's story is not about land. Don't, don't misunderstand what we're saying up here today. God's story is not about land. God's story is about you. God's story is about His love for you. A love that, that would literally send His Son into this world. Not to make you a better religious person. Jesus did not come here so that you and I could be better at religious stuff. He didn't come here to give us a, a new and improved and, and upgraded Judaism into, into Christianity. Jesus entered this world because you and I were drowning in sin and death and hell. And He entered this world to rescue you and me from that. He entered this world to make us something that we in no way, shape, or form could make ourselves, no matter what religion we choose. He came into this world to make you and to make me a child of God. Well, folks, God tells a great story in the land of Israel. The question is, is that story taking place in your heart? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and I think back to something Karen said about just, you know, it becomes real, it becomes tangible. You, you've made us a people that are very impacted by what we can see and, and touch and feel. And, and, and Lord, I know I'm in a room where, where we believe the Bible. We believe the truth of it. We believe these stories happened. Yet it is interesting what happens when we get there and we physically see where they, they happened and what that does. And Lord, I pray for all of us, just a, a growing faith in the truth of your word, whether we ever go to Israel or not. And Lord, I would pray for... Perhaps those in this room right now that, that do not have that relationship with you. Lord, maybe they're like these in the picture. They're just trying to get as close as they can to touch something, to, to deal with the fear, to deal with the guilt. Oh, Lord, I pray they'd hear your words. The words of Jesus who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. 
Oh, Lord, I know there's people in this room right here, right now, who need to hear that invitation to rest. Rest from trying to be good enough. Rest from the insecurity of knowing you're not. Put their rest, their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's any in here today who need to begin a relationship with you, would you tell them right now, Lord? Tap them on the shoulder, maybe just like you did Peter, James, and John before you took them up on that mount. Tell them right now they need to come to you. May today be the day they begin that relationship as a child of God, resting in who you are, resting in what you've done, not in who they are, not in what they're trying to do. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you came to this world so that we could know you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.